Hello and welcome to the PhD Life Raft podcast. I'm Emma Brzezinski and today I am talking to the wonderful Nicholas Dirks. We're talking about the changing culture of universities. So we talk about expectations, we talk about exploitation of, of PhD researchers, we also talk about how things might shift in the future and the, and the potential for change. So I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Nicholas. Hello. So gorgeous to have you here. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and this is a very exciting topic that we're going to be getting into today. I was just saying before we started, but at the end of last season, I asked people what they would like to have forthcoming podcast episodes about. And um, someone said they'd like to kind of have an episode that really thinks about the changing culture of academia and the changing landscape of PhD study. And so when um, the email came in about um, you and your work, I was like, perfect, this will be great. So that is what we're going to get into today in terms of um, what you're calling this process of reimagining and your thinking around this based on a wealth of experience. Um, but before we get into that, I'm going to let you introduce yourself and as as every guest does to tell us a little bit about your journey, going right back to your PhD journey, how that was for you and then your uh, career after that. Great. Well, thank you, Emma. And it's uh, it's great to be here with you. Uh, I did my PhD uh, a few years ago, uh, back, in fact, in the 1970s. Amazing. And the university world was a rather different place than it yeah. is today. So, yeah. uh, you know, so bear with me, flashback. Uh, I uh, became very interested as a, an American growing up in a suburb where I didn't have very much experience of the world at large. Uh, by the fact that when I was 12 years old, my father took the entire family to India for a year, where he taught on a Fulbright uh, scholarship uh, in a college just outside what is now Chennai, what was Madras at the time. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I just became fascinated by India. When I went to college, I majored in Asian and African studies, uh, and I had the opportunity to go back to India to do a senior thesis, which I did on caste politics in South India. Uh, and then I went on, and I just uh, wanted to continue that kind of work. I did my PhD at the University of Chicago. I did it in the history department. But I did it at a time when uh, any kind of study of a place like India was part of what we called in the U.S. area studies. Uh, still, still sometimes called that. But uh, that meant that I had uh, a history uh, PhD, but I actually studied primarily with an anthropologist, and took courses with political scientists, with sociologists, with uh, literature people, Sanskritists, and and others. So I had this broad interdisciplinary experience uh, in my PhD, and I was able to go back to India for eighteen months to do the actual research. Uh, of course, like I think every graduate student, you know, there were things, some things that worked really well, and there were other things that um, were not great. I had a, uh, a one member of my committee 
who I had some disagreements with, and um, that turned out to be a problem when I submitted my PhD thesis, and he thought I should write it, uh, or rather rewrite it entirely. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't um, it wasn't a completely smooth experience. I've had you know great academic ex uh, a success ever since, so I'm I'm not complaining. But I did I did experience how 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 uh, vulnerable graduate students can be. Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, you know to to uh, to a mentor uh, with whom one might have some differences uh, of opinion, and of course. Uh, there are times when you need to be, uh, you know, part of mentoring is, is to tell the student to take a different direction or to, you know, do something that they might find uh, initially, uh, you know, not what they wanted to do. Uh, but this, I think, was a kind of uh, a kind of ideological and methodological disagreement. So uh, I became came aware during that process that uh, it was really important as a mentor when I got the opportunity to do that from the other side of the table uh, to really try to make sure uh, that I didn't let disagreements about some issues get in the way of my responsibility as a mentor. Yes. Well, that, what, a, what a gorgeous lesson that is in terms of what you can offer to your to your students in that. Um, and I know that this theme of of in your own work of interdisciplinarity is probably going to come up again in a minute in terms of seeing how uh, academia functions and um, how we negotiate that. Um, so you've you said very humbly in terms of you had some success with that. You've you, I'd love you to tell us a little bit about kind of where the journey took you because I, I think that will set up in terms of from what point are you reflecting back on. Um, the kind of the the I wouldn't say state of the nation in terms of the state of academia now and in terms of how you see the culture changing and the possibilities you see from the future so can you tell us a little bit about what happened after your PhD indeed well I was very fortunate uh to get a job out of graduate school uh there weren't very many jobs in South Asian history when I was applying for them so it seemed like a a time when I might have to do something else, and I'll come back to that uh, question, in fact, uh, later on, because uh, we're in a similar moment in terms of job opportunities in some fields, yes, yes. uh, and my field in particular, although it went through a, a kind of golden age in between. It's no longer uh, what it has been. It's more like what it was when I was uh, when I was on the job market. But I got my first job at, um, at, a, at an odd place for me. But a wonderful institution, the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, California, Caltech. And I was uh, basically teaching courses to Caltech students who were majoring in physics and chemistry and engineering. Wow. Uh, about, you know, Asian civilization and very broad kind of distribution courses and, and so on. No PhD students. But I had a wonderful time. It was when I was able to turn my thesis into a book. Uh, and ultimately get get tenure. And uh, but as soon as I did, I, I I was offered a job to go to the University of Michigan, which had a very top graduate uh, program in 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 South Asia, and in particular in the two fields I'd worked in, or the two disciplines, history and anthropology. Mm. Uh, and I went there and uh, uh, enjoyed, you know, having having colleagues, enjoyed having the opportunity to teach graduate students. Uh, and being allowed to create with a colleague of mine who was a classicist, uh, Sally Humphreys, a, uh, a joint PhD program between the departments of history and anthropology 
uh, and uh, it is still functioning. It's still a great program. It's the interdepartmental PhD program in, uh, in, in anthropology and history at the University of Michigan. But it, it got me uh, involved not just in graduate teaching, but in also trying to uh, uh, create opportunities for graduate students to get the kind of ad hoc uh, interdisciplinary education I'd, I'd been able to get, but again, in an ad hoc way mm. at the University of Chicago. Mm. So, so I, 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 I enjoyed my time in Michigan. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, things happen. And uh, because of the success of the anthropology and history program, I was actually recruited to Columbia University to be the chair of the anthropology department. So I couldn't um, say no to the bright lights. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> moved to New York and um, uh, and had the opportunity to to hire a lot of faculty and to really create a new graduate program. Uh, in the anthropology department, where for the first time we were able to offer full funding for every PhD student we admitted, uh, we were wow, able that... to, uh, you know, give them effectively five years of support. Uh, but you know, uh, in which uh, I also learned uh, about some of the difficulties of funding PhD students, of uh, making sure that they had teaching opportunities, but trying not to overuse uh, them uh, to the point where it interfered with their own uh, graduate work. Mm. Mm. Uh, and, and, and then too, I began to experience for the first time uh, the difficulties when you had students who did very well, but still had to enter into a job market where there were fewer jobs than, uh, than there were applicants uh, and where there were lots of disappointments and um, where mentorship uh, really, you know, started with the first uh, uh, day of orientation in the in the fall of the of the of the first graduate student year, uh, but continued right through a career that didn't always lead in a straightforward way to academic employment. Yes, 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 um, and I think that's that's a really useful moment for us then to talk to go into our kind of next topic. Um, although this doesn't cover your whole CV, but we'll put that we'll put that in the show notes. But just to know that you're very accomplished and have a, have a lot of experience in in kind of steering institutions too, because as Chancellor Berkeley, you were you were kind of steering the institution, and so you now have got to a point where you are reflecting on this culture. So the culture of academia, but also as you've just mentioned, there how that sits within the wider culture and people going into the job market, which is a kind of a wider job market. So this this sense of you've you've just written a book called City of Intellect. And so this this sense of thinking about the university as a as a potential as a city of intellect, but what that means in terms of the changing culture of the university. So can we sort of get into that now and 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 how you see it, what you see the challenges as, and what you see the opportunities as. Yeah, well, you know, just to to go back for a second to uh, my time at Columbia, when I when I went there, uh, the tendency at a university like Columbia was to admit a lot of PhD students, but not to fund them fully. Right. The history department at Columbia, when I got there in the in the mid '90s, had something like 300 graduate students on the books, but very few of them were actually full-time students. Many of them were doing other things. Some of them were teaching adjuncts as adjuncts in uh, in, in departments across the greater New York area. Uh, but it wasn't a very responsible way to run a graduate program. So we downsized. We uh, we restricted admission basically to those who had full funding. 
Uh, and then we had support from the Mellon Foundation in the U.S., which was uh, trying to encourage universities to uh, speed up the time to degree for PhD students in the humanities and humanistic social sciences. But, you know, the truth is that uh, when faculty are teaching graduate students, they're often engaged in an act of kind of uh, reproduction. Yes. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I heard uh, uh, I heard Luke Maynard, a professor at Harvard, uh, talking about the uh, the crisis in the humanities the other other day, and he said, "Graduate school is the bedroom of uh, of faculty in the sense that it is where 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 they reproduce themselves." Yes, yes, yes. And 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 of course, the problem there is that we're often trying to uh, uh, train our graduate students to be like us. Yes. But we were trained to be like, you know, like our mentors. Yes. Uh, and it's a very, very, uh, you know, uh, uh, conservative way to think about uh, how you train students and probably not a good idea to try to clone oneself uh, in a graduate <laughs> student, either because, you know, uh, it's it's not a good idea in the sense that you want to cultivate the uh, creativity uh, and you want to support the interests of your own students, but also because the world is changing and the world of university yes. is changing very, very quickly. And that's really to the point of your of your question. Yes. yes. So it doesn't make sense anymore for a, a graduate student who uh, has very uncertain uh, career prospects to spend uh, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years doing a PhD. In the U.S., uh, the average time to degree in some humanities fields is eight or nine years. It's obviously quicker than that in the UK. Yes. Uh, but um, uh, but this has been a major issue. And of course, on the one hand in the US, we say, uh, you know, the graduate student comes in, uh, takes graduate seminars, uh, you know, develops a sense of an intellectual community, uh, often reframes what their plan is for what they want to do for the research. And that's, you know, what is distinctive about a US PhD education. But if you spend too much time uh, uh, in those seminars, if you spend too much time, uh, you know, again, trying to, uh, to 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 conform to the expectations of faculty who want you to be like them, uh, it can make for uh, an extraordinary expenditure of time. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and so I became, uh, you know, really very uh, committed to the idea that we had to speed up the time to degree. But we also had to think more broadly about what we were doing when we were training a graduate student. Uh, and now I'll just fast forward to when I moved to Berkeley. The first year I was there as chancellor, I was meeting the uh, the, the 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 president of the Graduate Student Association at, at the University of California, Berkeley. And he had just done a survey and he himself was doing a PhD in philosophy. But he told me that 50% of the graduate students at Berkeley when they were able to answer this question uh, anonymously on a survey, declared that they uh, did not want academic employment. They actually wanted to get their PhD and then get a job outside the academy. Mm. But most most of us, most of us uh, faculty, uh, actually uh, not only didn't know that, but we treat our students, all of them, as if they're going to go on and have an academic career just like us. Yes, 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 yes. But, yes. but the other thing that came out in this conversation with the head of the uh, GSA at Berkeley was that students were often uh, reluctant to confide in their own faculty mentors that they might have other kinds of interests and ambitions, because then they were 
worried that they would become second-class citizens in the PhD program. Mm -hmm. So I began talking to uh, departments and faculty and colleagues and others to say, look, the the world is changing, and and we have to be uh, uh, able to think about a PhD outside of our own context of the university. Now, Emma, that was back in 2013. Right, right. And the intervening 10 years, you know, the situation has just become much more uh, uh, intense because yeah. uh, the job market in, 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 in many of these disciplines has gotten worse and worse. Yeah. Uh, there's been an overproduction of PhD students. Uh, not only that, there is, I think, uh, a growing sense that there are huge opportunities for people with PhDs to go off and do other things, not to take away from the experience of being a PhD student, but uh, to suggest that it isn't an act of failure to decide to do something else. It's often an act of uh, of, of 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 real uh, and um, you know serious ambition to. Yes use the PhD to make a difference in the world, but in a different way, perhaps. Absolutely, yes. And yes. so so that that was the frame within which I began to think about how we have to uh, really begin to change uh, the way we do graduate education when I, when I started writing my book, The City of Intellect. And I thought about it in several respects. First, uh, that uh, there is a difficult job, job market, to be sure. But, but really, second, that we owed all of our students uh, the opportunity to think about a PhD differently than we thought about it as faculty. Uh, and that uh, uh, to do that, we had to reduce the time to degree radically. We had to uh, remember our own experience, uh, which was often that once we finished the PhD and got a job, there was actually a great deal that we learned after we got the PhD degree. Yes. Yes. You don't have to know everything in order to get the PhD. The PhD is a credential, but it's a moment in a journey. Uh, and it doesn't have to become uh, this thing that becomes almost an impossible uh, uh, you know, peak to climb uh, when, when it comes to uh, you know, setting the kinds of expectations for what a dissertation should be, for what a uh, uh, you know, for for what the full uh, uh, set of uh, accomplishments that are part of the PhD program should be, and of course, at the same time, uh, cost of living uh, uh, issues get worse and worse. In California, they were uh, around the cost of housing in particular, uh, and there were so many other challenges that graduate students were facing, uh, as well as uh, concerns that they were being used effectively as cheap labor. Yes. Uh, which led to the growing uh, uh, the growing movement for unionization among graduate students who no longer accepted the argument that they were simply there as apprentices, uh, learning from their masters and um, uh, and just simply transitioning to full-time employment in the academy. All of the terms that used to undergird those uh, uh, you know those 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 assumptions uh, uh, had to be rethought. Uh, and I think that they're clearly being rethought by, our graduate students, but they need to be rethought by faculty, by deans of uh, of, of graduate divisions, uh, and by uh, university administrators more broadly. Well, I think that is what is, will be music to people's ears in terms of all those feelings and challenges that people are having. Um, you articulating that and you talking about that from the position that you can look back on it from from the from the um experience that you can offer to that um because all of those things that you're you're saying people are living that um 
I love this one. I love, I love and horror. I'm love and horrified in equal measure by this sense of this kind of bedroom of academia because I think that 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 kind of really um, intense experience that some people have and feeling like they are being molded, feeling like they're being sent in a particular direction that doesn't feel comfortable to them. Seeing the, seeing the institution from a very different perspective than their supervisors and mentors are seeing it. Um, and to be able to have a kind of articulation of that, I, I think, is really, really helpful, um, as well as the really important issues, kind of calling out the really important issues about, you know, casualization of teaching and the, the way in which PhDs are vulnerable, as you said right at the beginning, in terms of the vulnerability of, of, of PhD researchers and the way in which they can be exploited. I think this is just, you know, really, really helpful to, to put it out there so that we can kind of have a look at it. So I think I'm aware of time. I, before we came on, I was like, blimey, this, it's not long. <laughs> it's not long that we've got. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm aware that we've kind of, we've, we've, we've put that out there, but, and we've already, we've touched on some of those issues and, and touched on some of the, the kind of the reimagining um, aspect of, of, of your work. Um, I wonder if before we go to, to a kind of a, a top tip for people who are living that experience and what, you know, what can they do and, and how might they um, think about that? If there is anything else that you wanted to say around that, um, the kind of where, where you see things moving forward, how you see things potentially continuing to change, hopefully for the better. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me give, one example of something I've been thinking a lot about recently, uh, and that is really uh, a continuation of what I was suggesting about the need to to think differently about what a graduate education uh, is leading towards. Yes, we uh, uh, you know almost every day we see something in the news about artificial intelligence and about uh, chat, <coughs> excuse me, chat yes. GPT and you know the extraordinary uh, uh, power of these new large language models. Uh, and we, of course, are reading about uh, everything from existential risk uh, associated with with AI to uh, uh, to questions having to do with what it's going to do to the economy, uh, how is it going to affect uh, you know issues around structural uh, racism and bias, uh, and indeed uh, how we might think about regulating and governing uh, this new technological power that we're producing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, and as I uh, as I've been engaging with this in my work at the New York Academy of Sciences, I've been I've been thinking that you know the truth of the matter is that uh, the uh, the kinds of questions now that are being raised around around AI and technology are questions that have to do with ethics, uh, with uh, the kinds of traditional concerns of moral philosophy, with issues uh, issues in, in social science and in sociology and anthropology. Um, uh, that have to do with uh, with thinking about the social and cultural and behavioral uh, effects of uh, of new forms of technology. Uh, we're thinking about uh, what this does to community, what it does to individuals, what it does even to our mental health, uh, and all the psychological issues. And I'm uh, I'm saying that because I think what uh, what universities overlook sometimes is that here we are uh, uh, training a lot of different graduate students in fields. Uh, where we've been thinking that you know the real question is whether they're going to get a job in uh, uh, you know in the 18th century novel, uh, and in in fact uh, you know the kinds of skills that we train are going to be important for the world outside the university. In some ways, uh, 
even more than they've been in the past. Yes, yes. And so I, uh, my, my last thought is that, you know, as we think about these graduate programs, not only must we be interdisciplinary within the university, yes. but we have to connect with some of the pressing issues, whether they have to do with AI, whether it has to do with climate, whether it has to do with uh, you know, the geopolitical tensions that, of course, we uh, we're, 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 uh, we're, we're living in uh, a time full of and um uh and that you know there is in fact much that uh that our that our phd students can contribute to the world whether they go on to uh an academic career or not i love that i, I just I, I love in your work the way in which you're giving this kind of expansive perspective of not only you know that the phd experience and what that could could encompass <laughs> Uh, when we get out of the bedroom, what what that could encompass, and but and also the, it, you know because that expansion then expands the the role of academia and and what we all as as learners want to offer to the world, um, you know our love of knowledge and our desire to um, to uh, share that and uh, be curious about the world and change the world, and I, I think that this sense of mission in your in your book is really strong and I, I kind of I, I think we'll have we'll have in the show notes the detail of this but I, I really um thank you for articulating that thank you for sharing that vision of what things might be I, th- I think this is awesomeness um thank so you. before I let you go um I'm going to ask the very reductive question having gone into an expansive space reductive question of do you have <laughs> a top tip for current PhD researchers who who are who are there in the academy uh trying to negotiate this changing culture well you know I uh uh, you gave me a tip ahead of time that I was going to be asked for this tip. So I've been thinking about it. And of course, uh, like like many members of faculty, I, I can't come up with one that- uh, There you, know, you go. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and it, but it does relate to, I suppose, what I'm going to say, which is that, um, you know, what I, what I, when I look back, I, I remember feeling completely stymied by this idea that I had to write a dissertation that was going to become- uh, in a way, a kind of symbol of my own uh, intellectual uh, propensity. Mm. And it became a huge burden. Mm. Uh, for the longest time, uh, I just couldn't start writing. I, I just went back and did more research and more research and more research. <laughs> and, and and it was only when I finally sat down and just said, okay, I'm going to write. You know, I don't uh, I'm not going to write. I'm not going to wait for the perfect moment of inspiration. I'm just going to start writing something. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it. And of course, I, I, that was uh, you know it was on yellow paper, and I was writing uh, with with a with a pencil. And I I ripped up the first few uh, you know sheets of paper. Uh, I did ultimately, uh, uh, by the way, write my dissertation on a word processor. But this was uh, early drafts. Love it. And um, uh, and 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 yet, once I wrote something down. I realized that writing a dissertation is much more like uh, building a kind of, uh, you know, building a a, a, a a shed or a a wall of some kind. Uh, it it it's really just one piece after the next. Mm-hmm. And when you start writing, you actually realize you know far more than you think you know. And if you're writing about what you know, there's a great deal that you have to say 
if you're only thinking about research, you're only thinking about, in the end, what you don't know. And that drives you in a different direction away from actually getting it done. And the PhD, the tip is the PhD is a credential, but it's only one step uh, in the journey of your life. And, um, and you have to treat it uh, like a, uh, like any other step uh, and, uh, and not uh, make it into a kind of test of your own self-worth uh, or a kind of index of, uh, of self-affirmation because finishing it is affirmation enough. Oh my goodness. I know so many people will be able to relate to that sense of this is such a huge thing. And the burden of this, I I, I love it. This sense of that it is, it's just a credential. It's a step. It's a, it's a transition. And I also really love this. You know, more than you think, you know, you know, more than you think, you know, just start writing. I know it's easier said than done to just start writing, but you know, you and I have done that. It, we, we know that feeling. We know it's easier said than done, but actually taking that action, there's, there's magic in that. Um, Nicholas, thank you so much. There's so much more that we could have talked about and I'm aware we've just touched on the issues, but um, thank you for doing that um, and for giving us a, a, a opening up this discussion for us. Thank you so much. It's my great pleasure to be here. Thank you, Emma. And thank you all for listening.